Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion. Today is graphics, so we will be talking a little bit more about graphics. If you have questions, the best day to ask about graphics are on Tuesdays. These are our graphics day. So um, so ask those in the first hour. And in the second hour, if you've got comments or questions about CGraph, we're going to talk about not how we how we covered CGraph, but what we saw there, you know, the trends, the the apps, the all the things that, that, um, that we thought were cool at CGraph. So if you've got comments or questions, go ahead and throw those into Makana. Let's go ahead and jump into the first question. Bill, what do we have? The first one, our top-rated question today is from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn. He says, morning, everyone. Does a 1440p display, is it that much better than a 1080p display? He's looking to get some new monitors under a Mickey. And what is the most efficient purchase? And for those of you who didn't know the uh, office hours lists of price points a colin is seven dollars and alex is 700 a mickey is thirty seven hundred dollars so he's looking for under thirty seven hundred dollars two i think i think Mickey's oh, it was thirty two hundred dollars yeah yeah okay. exactly no he and corrected then, me because i said exactly the same thing alex and he, oh, he says, said 37 the price <laughs> went up on the mic because it was it was adjusted I see, it was for, pegged to the mic it wasn't yeah. pegged to the dollar it was pegged right, to the mic exactly. i see i thought i thought the dollar see mine now is fifty dollars a month or ten dollars a month so mine was pegged to photoshop so 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 now an Alex is no longer seven hundred dollars. I thought we just picked a number and then stuck with it. This is very complicated for me. Um, Unless you know, we forget a Charles is eleven thousand because yes, Charles uh, it's properly said a Charles. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, the uh, yeah, that's a that's a um, really nice monitor. The uh, anyway, so yeah, so I don't think I wouldn't get a fourteen forty. I, I think you're either going to get a four K or a ten eighty p. I'll be honest, I, I prefer more 1080p's than less 4K's. Um, so I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight monitors <laughs> and on they're all 1080p. Um, so so I think that I would um, I would stick with more monitors that are um, that are 1080. I, I get Dell's. Um, I find that price to performance, I don't know if they're the least expensive monitors that you can get, but the price to performance are is really good. The one thing I will say is that um, there are three things that I have to have in a monitor to buy it. Uh, number one is I, I got to have a Visa mount. I got to have a Visa mount. Like you got to be able to, I, I don't have it. None of these, mon one monitor has a stand. The rest of them are all hooked to arms and I can move them around and get them out of the way and stuff like that. Number two, it's got to have a C13 uh, um, IEC cable. So the C13 is what you see in every computer. It's got a little hump on it. It's got the three prongs. And you stick it in, not the three round ones, but the, three, the kind of the square one with three prongs in it. Got to have that um, because that means the power supply is built in and that means that I don't have to like figure out where that power supply went somewhere, somewhere else. It, it makes the th monitor a little thicker. It's worth it. And then the final thing is, is that I make sure it's got HDMI. <laughs> so you can end up with some that are uh, DVI or not DVI, but... Um, uh, display port, display port, and you know it's fine to have a display port, but you got to have an HDMI. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so those are the three things that I require. Uh, 1080p is important, um, and again, I found that we've bought at this point probably hundreds of Dell monitors. So, so I think that that's kind of um, we've kind of standardized on this one specific one. I can't think of the, the model number, but it has those three things. Right, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, if you're going for 1080, generally it's going to end up being a 24 inch monitor and as to the yep. brands out there uh i'll offer an alternative hp the um, uh, dream displays are quite nice for color matching next question 
Next one comes to us from Mitchell Hill, who was just speaking. Another, uh, yet another mute system for your microphone and camera. What do you think of this? And he has a list for something called onairwarning.com. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, here we go. I sort of uh, self-professed uh, mute uh, specialist here. But uh, if you look at the device, uh, it's, it's two parts. One is the uh, little uh, display, which is a nice little tally, uh, which is tied into uh, Teams or Zoom. And uh, it will show not only the mic condition, but also the camera. Uh, sort of like when you go into Zoom, you can turn your camera on and your mic off. And it's tied to that globally. So uh, you don't have to have that, uh, that particular application in the forefront. It'll do it wherever Zoom happens to be. And then the other part is they're coming up with a uh, switch system that allows you to mute. It's just a little, uh, it looks like an X key uh, that you can turn it on and off. I'm not a big fan of the uh, graphics that they have on the tally. And uh, I'm definitely concerned uh, when I look at their videos, they're kind of poorly done with some spelling mistakes in it. So that kind of sends a flag up for me. <laughs> Good, Courtney. Yeah, he described most of it. The the, uh, the switch looks like, oops, and it auto changes off of the uh, picture. <laughs> That's the little control button. It also has an app that runs on your phone, apparently, uh, to control it. And the question is how well it works. And, and I guess it plugs into a USB port, but I'm not sure if it's signaling over the USB or if it's just using it for power. Uh, I guess it's signaling over the signaling. USB too. Yeah. And, um, but uh, to control the mute and the camera, uh, camera on off the mute and on the air uh, lights, you have to use the, the buttons or with the uh, app that goes on your phone. So that sounds... A little inconvenient. Uh, whether or not it actually works with all those different, uh, you know, Zoom and <clears throat> you know, uh, Discord and all the other streaming software is a question. And how often will it tell you you're muted when you're not? I'm not sure. We'll have to get it and find out. And did you see a price on it, Mitch? I didn't see a price. I did not. It's a Kickstarter item, yeah. particularly on the switches. But it looked like for uh, the switches, they they it looks a lot like this. The switches. This is exactly nine dollars. Like in case you're wondering, it's <laughs> it's probably yeah. the same piece of hardware, yeah. just yeah, repurposed. Yeah. Let's buy it for nine dollars, and then we'll paint some stuff on it. So that's what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't have any confidence in anything that's software based for mute. I just have to say that I feel like it needs to be. I watch a lot of people in a lot of meetings not quite get that right and have constant mute issues. And so I'm a big fan of the hard part. So what I will say is the hard part, I'm trying to find a less expensive mute switch. Which one do you have, uh, Bill? Because you're seems to It's the Rolls MS-111. That sounds like a commercial for it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I have two of these and uh, I have, I'll be completely frank. The first one that I ever bought from this company, and this company is in like up in Utah or Colorado, I can't remember which, uh, small outfit. They're really nice guys. They've been around for a long time. They have a lot of products. So I kind of feel good about Rolls uh, and I still do. I had a few little clicking transient problems, so I wrote a nice letter to them. I sent it back. It was gone for a while. It came back, and it worked flawlessly. And I always love that kind of response from a small vendor of equipment. So I feel really good about them. I have two. I may get one or two more of these because I think I'm going to put one in the voice booth. We've got a thing that's going on in there. So, yeah. I yeah, I've been trying to find ones that, that are there. I, I, I got a, a different one. I think Worldwind makes one, and I... The problem is, is that when you unmute it, you can hear it. <laughs> you can hear it in the in the line. And I was like, okay, well, that's not useful. So yours yours seems to work well, Bill. So I'm I'm I might get one. I'm trying to get a cheap one for my not cheap but inexpensive for my uh, travel kit. 
and that's the that's what I'm. That's the what one I'm thing I'll note, Alex, it is kind of heavy, and that I think Help is a really me. good thing. You put it on your desk, and it stays there. It's not yeah. a little oops, I knocked it off the table kind of thing. Yeah, but I would highly recommend sticking with some kind of. I would, if you're doing this all the time, and especially if you're doing some kind of show, get a hardware mute. Uh, the the software mutes. Um, I watch a, a lot of people have it not work well. Next question. Next question comes from Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the massive blackout on the East Coast of North America. How did that change your work habits then, and did you stick with them and adapt since? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yes, I, I moved to the West Coast, so we won't have those kind of problems. <laughs> <laughs> no, we just have them rolling all the time. So we do have rolling blackouts. Uh, mm-hmm. I, the East Coast blackout didn't, I think more a more pertinent question is what about the Texas blackout, which lasted, what, five days or something? Uh, that was really murderous and in the middle of winter. Uh, and uh, because they weren't on a, uh, you know, they don't share the grid with the rest of the country, um, they couldn't get it back online very quickly. Uh, so I would worry more about that. And I tell you, it sold, that little episode down in Texas sold hundreds of thousands of portable generators that burn natural gas or propane that people have installed in their houses uh, for just such a situation with rolling blackouts and those kind of power interruptions that are beyond your control. Uh, so I, I've seen a whole lot of those. Uh, I think you you bought one for your parents, didn't you, Alex? Uh, one of those standby generators or something. Right? My parents have one. No, they they, have they, one? they yeah. I didn't buy it for them. It's a big oil one, <laughs> so it's this huge oil drum that sits outside the house. And it um and it was funny. They bought it, and then it was like four or five years before they lost power. It was like it, it jinxed it, so they didn't have it. And my 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 the, the power went out in the house. I happened to be there when it, the first time it went out after four or five years, and I told my. Uh, I my I told my mom on the phone, oh, the power just went out. And then she got so excited. She goes, did it switch on? Did it switch on? You know, so that's like, yes, it took a second or two, but it came back on. So, yeah. So, the, the, yeah, they, they, I mean, they live in the middle of nowhere. So having, a, having a power would be a good thing. Mitchell? Yeah, the other thing to keep uh, on the lookout for are sags. Uh, that's when the power sags uh, when they're maybe doing a switch. I have one here. Um, at nine o'clock every day, it's like they must be switching you get a somewhere sag. down the line. You actually you get, get, a, a you get a voltage change uh, in a in yes. a U.S. grid. It sags. Oh, interesting. That's, yeah, that's what really ABC says. It's, super, they call it a sag. Super bad for your equipment. <laughs> so, so that's why you definitely, if you're seeing something sag, you want to figure out how to normalize that um, because that is a that power supplies really don't like that. You know, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and maybe your wiring. You know, I have a problem in, in my house because it was built 100 years ago, uh, and it has the original wiring So uh, and fuses. Uh, so I find that uh, I now have a UPS that monitors the voltage, and I was <laughs> horrified to discover that when the air conditioner's on uh, and the TV's on and the microwave's on all at the same time, the voltage drops to like 104 volts which is not good for the equipment. Uh, and it's just because the wiring can't handle it in my particular uh, abode. So, uh, you know, if you have an older house or a house that was wired with aluminum wiring from the 50s or 60s, that can be a problem because uh, it can be current limited. So that yeah. can be very bad for your equipment as well. That's why it's good to have a, a good power regulator or UPS that can fix that stuff on your uh, delicate equipment.
Yeah, you can get a you can get a UPS. You can also get a rect you know you can rectify it. So you can get a rectifier or you know a regulator that that will basically plug into the wall and then you plug your equipment into it and it'll maintain that voltage no matter what. So that's all not no matter what. A, but, a good but, Furman will do that for you too. Yeah. Next question, Paul Wallace uh, from Austin, Texas. What is the H one hundred chip? This Nvidia chip costs forty thousand dollars U.S. and some countries, not the U.S., are cornering the world supply. Why is it so essential for AI, and what will be the impact of its shortage? Go ahead, John. Okay, so the the H one hundred is the latest GPU. It's a card. It's not just a chip. So. So NVIDIA has, they use the, the letter designation. So the T is, stands for Tesla. The A100, which is the predecessor to the H, is Ampere, and H is Hopper. So H100 is the top of the line card right now. It's selling for in between 30 to thirty to 40,000, depending on demand. Demand super high, for example. Facebook in their centers has over 20,000 of the H100 cards installed. Stability has tens of thousands as well. And so there's this big race in all these supercomputer centers for generative AI. They, they're they specifically designed for AI for transformer models uh, because they have like 18,000 CUDA cores in each one of these chips. So they're significantly designed to do very fast neural networking. That's what they're designed to do. It's a, it's a great card. I wish I could have had one myself. <laughs> That's a lot of, yeah, I think that even if you had the cash, it's part, partially just getting the actual uh, device would be a, a thing. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Dave Kaufman in Vancouver. What are your guidelines about when and when not to use original sound in Zoom? Good, Courtney. Well, in my case, where you've got garbage trucks out the uh, or, or construction going on outside the door, and you've got a air conditioner that's on, it's going to sound something like this. With uh, if you turn off original sound, uh, so I mean, turn on original sound for musicians, uh, so it doesn't. The noise cancellation is pretty good. So if you've got a, a large number of fan noise or air conditioner noise, uh, that's the time to turn off original sound. And the other thing I wanted to mention uh, on the mute switch uh, thing that we, we got off that, uh, where I had a, a chance to mention it. Uh, oh, you can hear the backup alarms. Um, anyway, uh, the, uh, was that uh, with Zoom, um, if you use a mechanical mute switch uh, and you have original sound off, um, the mechanical mute switch presents prevents any sound from going to the Zoom app uh, while you're not speaking, which is the sound that it uses to characterize uh, for its noise reduction. So it doesn't know what to do with noise reduction until you unmute your mechanical mic switch and it hears everything at once. So if you're going to use uh, Zoom with uh, original sound off where it's doing noise reduction, uh, it's better not to use a mechanical mic switch so that you mute it in Zoom. It just mutes the feed that's going out to Zoom, but it lets Zoom's software actually hear what's coming into your microphone uh, so it can characterize that sound for noise reduction. Next question. Next question comes to us from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn. Morning, everyone. What's the, what are the panel's thoughts on this ATM mini alternative? And he's got a link there. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I looked at it. It has some interesting, this is what it looks like. Kind of looks familiar, doesn't it? Um, it has less buttons than the ATM Extreme does on it. And it has a preview row and a program row, which are separate. 
So you don't have to change modes like you do on the A10 Mini. Uh, it's priced at around $295. Um, it has a couple of other differences. It has an SD card slot on it, and it can record onto the SD card, and it can play back. It's got uh, media control buttons up here uh, where you can uh, uh, record and or play back off the SD card. So that's handy. It also has two still stores, which is similar to the ATEM, and it has a multi-view out. The biggest problem I see, if you go to the website, is it sold out at <laughs> So, And that's the manufacturer. So if the manufacturer says they're sold out, that may be a problem. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it has a T-bar on it. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> that's it. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's sold out because it's not available yet. I don't think it's even shipping yet. So it's calling, I think, sold out and not available yet, I think, are, are you know, together in this one. Uh, it's just been released. I did watch the video because because the video was posted before the show. I was able to watch it. And uh, so thank you very much. Especially if you have links and especially if you have videos, it's great for producers to ask the question, that question before the, we start so that we can actually get through it. Um, so um, this looks, it, it, uh, it looks interesting. Uh, there's a couple things about it. Number one is they, he, the reviewer really likes the idea that you would have uh, all the controls inside the switcher. So it just takes up one quadrant or a half that you can sit there and change the settings. I don't I used to have a switcher like that. The HS50 from Panasonic was like that, and it drove me a little crazy. So I'm not, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily a feature. Um, and so that, that'd be one thing. I think the playback is the thing that I hope that Blackmagic looks at very closely. Um, the two rows is nice. You could totally put two rows in uh, for the ATEM switcher if you got rid of all the buttons that we don't use. So, you know, like there's so many, you could take rows and rows of buttons out of here, and I wouldn't notice. I wouldn't even know that they were there. I don't even know what these buttons do. Um, you know, like I have a bunch of buttons down there and some of them are red and some of them are white and they don't seem to make any difference <laughs> to me. So, so, um, so anyway, so I, I don't, I don't really know what they're for. Um, and so that you could definitely put a second row in. I think that there was a lot of features in there that I think this gets into, we were talking about this yesterday, uh, a waterfall approach versus an agile approach. And I think that there was a waterfall approach uh, to developing the ATEM, which is that they thought about all the things they thought you'd need. They switched it all in and then none of us use it. So, um, so anyway, so I think that I, I, I do like the simplified interface. I don't think it's very competitive. I mean, I think that the problem is, is the market size. There's hundreds of thousands of ATEMs out there. And so, you know, developing anything for it. Um, and also it, the ATEM mini is the beginning of moving up. So as you get better or bigger or whatever you're doing, you have an ATEM mini and then you might get an extreme, then you might have a two me or a four me, then a constellation. And the issue is, is that the interface stays the same and the controls stay the same. And that's a huge value if you're thinking about ever growing um, at all. So, so I think that it would be, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see this as really that competitive, especially at 299. If it was at like 165, maybe there's people that are, you know, cost sensitive enough to, to do it. But even then time and stability are valuable. Go ahead, Mitchell. And it doesn't have a sting button. Sting button. Yeah, I know that's very important. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. With all the great mirrorless camera options at lower cost, what's the appeal of the Hollyland Venus Live? And they left the last E off of that at $1,000 US. 
It's a pretty interesting camera. Um, you know, so this is a, uh, I, I only got a chance to look at it, you know, while we were talking about the last question. Um, I can't tell what the, they, they don't seem to be showing us what the, um, uh, you know, uh, what, I, what I can't find is like the actual specs for it. So how big is the, the oh, CMOS? Here we go. Uh, but they just say it's a Sony CMOS, but they don't tell us how big the thing is. So I'm guessing it's very small. Um, and so that, yeah, that's, so that's the, the problem. It has an HDMI interface. It also has a Ethernet. Uh, it'd be interesting to test. Uh, it is, um, it's basically like a, you know, a big webcam. Um, that's what I mean, that, and that's really how they're selling it is a is a streaming cam. So the Ethernet can can stream. It's it can record. It's got HDMI out. It's got its own. Um, it has its own uh, screen so that you can see what's going on. Um, it's got some kind of color calibration according to them. Um, and uh, but it doesn't. You know, it, it's really hard to tell. They're not giving us enough. I think the problem really is is they're not giving us enough information to know whether it's worth it or not. It doesn't look like, it looks like the, the, the lens is built in. So it's just an all-in-one. Uh, I mean, basically this is, oh, and it has built-in UBC. So uh, so it really is just a, um, and, it, and the RTMP streaming is built into it. I mean, it's an interesting product. Um, I think that uh, for kind of, you know, it's, the all-in-one is helpful. I don't know how much remote control we have or, or control from the computer, um, but it's very close to the 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 very missed. You know, there's the 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 micro cinema or the micro studio, which Blackmagic released maybe ten years ago. It's just a great camera. It's just not updated. You know, <laughs> and 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 hopefully Blackmagic will get around to it because this little very small form factor is really valuable. Um, and, and this one could be interesting. It's, it's again, I, it's hard to tell from what they have here whether it would, you know, do all the things that we'd want it to do. Um, but it has a lot of little features packed into it. And the only thing I'd be, I'd, be, I'd wonder about is, you know, what is, it does RTMP or UVC. I, I, I just don't know what the, the chip size is. So it's very hard to know what kind of quality we would get out the other end. If it's a one-third inch chip, it's not interesting. If it's a half-inch chip, maybe uh, one inch or, or micro four-thirds, and it gets real interesting real quick. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, one interesting thing is it takes uh, the NPF batteries. So uh, um, you can use uh, your Sony-type batteries on the back of it uh, as well to power it, which is not something you see in a lot of webcams, but this is really designed to be used as more than a webcam, as a still camera and or a video camera. So, yeah. But we still don't know the specs. Yeah, they, they, and usually I have to admit that when people don't show specs, I just assume that they're bad. <laughs> so, so like, like that's the problem. If you don't, if you don't show the specs, I, especially when you release a product, I just assume it's not very, the specs are bad. And so that's the, I think that's the hard part for them. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. How would you compare the loop deck to the stream deck? Um, the loop deck is, I don't know if I have one within root. It doesn't have any, but it doesn't have any lit buttons. Uh, it's got lots of little buttons. And so they're not organized like little rows and they're not, and there's probably, it's not as much, um, there's not as, you know, there's not as much program, programmatic changes. It's not designed to tie into as many things, but they have a lot of different ones and they're designed to kind of, you know, they have rollers and, and you have a lot of other, con, you know, more controls. Let me see if I can find it real quickly here. I had one just, uh, here's a, uh, um, this is, this is one of the, this is the, I think the tour box from, from loop deck. And, um, and so this is, 
you can see that it's got a lot of other controls, more like a, you know, this is a roller. This is not a joystick in the center here. Um, but then I have, this is kind of a, you can kind of move this one, or you can spin this one around and push in an indent on it. And these have, you know, so there's a lot of different, different types of controls. So they're it's a little more organic if you're trying to, I've been playing with it, trying to edit with it and trying to play with it in, in logic. And, um, with limited success, <laughs> so but but I've been you know but that's been sitting around for a while. But that's an it's a it's a more organic controller than the Stream Deck. Um, I haven't found it to be more useful yet, but I I, I still have faith. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Well, it's just weird. I looked that up because I wanted to see if it was anything I was interested in or knew about. And under that spelling, it brought up a controller for Adobe Lightroom specifically on an Indiegogo thing. And it just caused me thinking, are we getting into trouble with, you know, the same spelling, the same terms for different things in closely allied Industries. Well, I think it works. It works with Lightroom, so it's you know, so Loop Deck will work with. There's lots of Loop Decks. I mean, there are ones with buttons that I was talking about, but they also have little. The big thing is, is Loop Deck has some some with buttons and some controllers. I have the smallest one, the little one that I have, but there are many of them, and some of them do have the buttons that are closer to the Stream Deck, and some of them, but a lot of them have rollers and all kinds of other things. But there is one, they do have a build of Loop Deck that works with Lightroom and Photoshop and other things where, you know, you can map your settings of what you're doing. So that if you wanted to, if you're trying to c control things really quickly, the big thing is, is that it's, the Loop Deck is kind of like a more advanced version of the Stream Deck Plus. You know, so the, the Stream Deck Plus has these buttons, but it also has, you know, you have these, these little encoders here that I can turn. Imagine a whole bunch of them with in different shapes and different forms, and you can figure out what you want to use. The, the smallest one being, again, what I have, which is the, the tour box, but they have, um, you know, larger ones that are, you know, much more robust. So let me see if I can grab this one here. You can, you can see it. Um, so if you look at this, this is a, a larger loop deck. And so you have, you know, a lot of more specialized controls down here. You have, you have encoders on either side. You still have the buttons. You don't have as much industry support for it, but it's um, there. You know, but that's, that's another, you know, so these are basically building more specialized interface tools for your, for your work. So you're not just stuck with a keyboard. And, a, and Stream Deck is a lot more structured, but it's also, I think, much more supported. I think Loop Deck was bought by Logitech. Is that right? Um, they just got bought by Logitech, I believe. So, so they're, um, so we'll see, we'll probably see a lot more of them. Next question. Let's see. Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I've moved to a new desk, which faces into a corner with severely limited space. How best can you light yourself softly without soft boxes? And he asked it as a question. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, options you have, especially if you go to uh, flat panel displays like the IntelliTech. It's just a pad with LEDs sewn into it, and you can squeeze it. And, and the best part is it's only about yay thick. So uh, that would be one option, depending on how much depth you have behind that desk. Um, the other thing, if you're looking for something soft and uh, reasonably priced, Nanlite makes a number of uh, different panels that have edge lighting in them. And what that means is the LEDs are uh, angled onto the edges so that it diffuses the light before it comes in and then bounces back out at you. And that way you don't have to pop a big shimmer on there or something else that's gonna take up a lot of space. Go ahead, Courtney. Can't hear you, Courtney. This is why we use hardware mute. <laughs> 
just let me just because if we were talking hardware about it, we just I just want to I just want to outline like why does Alex is so obsessed about hardware? We had exactly mute? the same problem. If we'd had a hardware mute because okay. it was unmuted, and then I clicked the button and it muted. So it's a moot point. It can still oh. do the opposite. All right. Anyway, I use the Niwar uh, flat panel lights. Uh, they're pretty cheap. They're bicolor. They have this. The new ones have a built-in uh, battery. Uh, built into that'll run it for uh, you know quite some time. Eight thousand milliamp hour battery. It, it's adjustable in color, temperature, and brightness. Gives you a nice. They're very thin. They're edge lit panels like the stuff that uh, Mitch was talking about, and uh, they're reasonably priced. You know, you get a pair of them for one hundred sixty nine dollars with a carrying case so that with the built in uh, battery. You don't have to worry about those uh, pesky uh, power outages we were talking about earlier. You got Bill. Don't necessarily be afraid of a softbox right now. I'm sitting in my key light, which I'm giving you a bad phone shot of, is above my main big monitor, and it's got a fabric grid on it. And because you're in a corner, you do have some uh, space typically behind you, um, behind the light. So most photo uh, softboxes aren't necessarily as deep as some of the old video ones. So you might be able to put a softbox up. That's just convenient for me as my main key light. I use two small panels for eye and face lighting, but that kind of gives the overall, brings up my whole body and, and anything around me to a level where I can get a decent um, exposure out of it. So it's just, you know, horses for courses. There's ways to mount and light anything, and softboxes are a good tool. Yeah, you can you can kind of build you, you can you can kind of build a rig. Uh, definitely be interested in a photograph. So if you if you post a link to a photograph of the thing, we can probably think about how to build that in. Um, because as I think that you usually you know what I did is I the, the what I have in front of me here is now mine's a little bit bigger, but it's I didn't get a big light. I have a couple lights, and then I have a um, uh, I used the um, maker pipe. So maker pipe basically are little feet, they're little pieces that will fit onto EMT fi uh, piping. And so I have the maker pipe and I built a, basically a frame that's five feet wide and three feet deep. But you could build that frame into your corner. So you could build a big frame with maker pipe that would just fit right into that corner. And then you drop some lights behind it. And now you're going to build up this big, you, all I did is hang, I hang diffuse material that I bought for $15 and cut it up from AW from um, Amazon. So it wasn't something that was particularly high quality or expensive to put in there. And then I just flushed it with a bunch of light and uh, some lights behind it and you end up with a big softbox. So, so that's something that you can do that. I think the frame cost me maybe a total of all materials, maybe $20, $30. Um, and um, maybe, well, with the, with the map, maybe 50 bucks. And then the lights behind them are a little bit more expensive just because I had them laying around. I, I, I'm using some um, Nanlite uh, 100s, um, but I just mounted them back there. But there's a lot of things you could put back there like the you know, newers or other things like that would be less expensive. You can also put little point lights back there because you're just pointing them at the diffuser. diffuser so so you can, you, there's a lot of ways that you can light that up. Quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions all, all the way through the show. So for the first hour, go ahead and tag those. Um, and you can tag them for the second hour. If you've got comments, questions, concerns about Seagraph, now you can go ahead and throw those in and tag them for the second hour. But go ahead and throw those questions in for the first hour and make sure to vote on them uh, so we know which order you'd like us to answer them. Next question. Alton Christensen in New York City says Descript is apparently making some huge announcements today, and he's got a link to it. Thoughts? 
don't have a lot of comments yet, but if you ask tomorrow, we'll probably have more comments because we'll see what they what they released. So um, yeah, go ahead and ask this again tomorrow and we'll have opinions because it looks like it's happening at 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. And so uh, so that's right at the same time I'll be on Mac break. So I'll have to find out afterwards uh, what it uh, what it actually looked like. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. How do you use AI in your everyday workflow? Good, John. Paul, you have to come over to my house because I use AI all day long. I'm using a combination now of ChatGPT4 and BARD and Claude. I'm getting better results out of Claude and BARD lately. What is Claude? Claude is Anthropics LLM, which is which is guys that used to work at OpenAI left and started Claude. They raised they raised half a billion dollars on a five billion dollar valuation. And Claude's Claude's really interesting. Is it Claude like 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 Claude like a name, or is it like Claude yeah, like a like a like a, when you said Claude the first time, I was like, why would they name it after a clump of dirt? So, um, but it's it's Claude like a C L A U D E Claude. Okay, yeah. Just want to make sure we we had that correct. So you um, take you take all three, and then you average them all together, and you end up with with really good what, written text. What makes Claude different? Claude allows you to input way more than any of the other large language models. It's like 100,000 tokens you can input into the model, which is way more than anybody else. That's the differentiation. And then, of course, we use, we use MidJourney, just like I'm sure Alex says. We create the artwork in MidJourney, and then I do compositing or editing in, in Photoshop. Generative AI in Photoshop is absolutely amazing. Um, and then we're using, I using DID to create to create talking avatars we did one for office hours courtney i was using i was uh, working with courtney on that and then using 11 labs for for audio for um for speech which is really 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 good so and, and you can just with 11 labs you can just take someone's voice you just take a if they're doing a podcast you just take the podcast and just train it on them right it's we just, did we did courtney's voice i took one of his videos off of youtube and it and it came out pretty darn good yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing how quickly, and I think that people keep on worrying about, I mean, everybody talks about like, why should I be doing this anymore? When they see at the NVIDIA, com- I, friend, a friend of mine, Fred, was at the at the NVIDIA keynote last week, and they were showing all the things you could do where you just call things out and things appear and everything just gets built. And the artist next to him just said, well, I don't even know why I'm even doing this anymore. You know, and the problem is, is that, that the explicit control that we still need at some point it still needs to be a person. It's not so far. I mean, you know, we'll be able to get better at that. But I think that it's still, I still think we are going to unleash just so much creativity. There's so many ideas that are in people's head that just simply can't express themselves because they can't draw. Like they can't make that image. They can't make those things. And I think that the ability to do that will, will you know, really change things in the same way that, again, when we look at, at, you know, rap in the 80s, there were people who had incredible stories to tell and music to make, and they didn't have traditional education in the, the instruments that, they, that were necessary. And so being able to put things on top of that um, was really, really important. And then it, it created, you know, a whole new industry um, out of it. Go ahead, uh, Bill. It was just, it's an interesting little anecdote. Uh, some months ago, maybe four or five months ago, my wife was doing something and I was in here and I was looking at some uh, videos from the battlefront in Ukraine. And the person who was narrating it is native from Ukraine. And so he's saying all the names right, but he has a very lilting speech pattern. And my wife walked by and she said, 
why are you listening to so much AI-generated voiceover? <laughs> I went, what? 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 And she, she was hearing the non-native English speaker speaking, getting certain things right, but having struggles with the other. And she immediately said, that's an AI voice. And I said, no, actually, there's the guy. He's speaking. It's not. But there's just so much confusion about what's what out there. I found that interesting. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, Japanese prefectures have stopped posting disaster information on X because of the new per day tweet limits. Could you th see threads becoming as useful for disaster response and notification as Twitter pre Musk was? I think currently posting the threads is more like if, if you if you posted if you posted into a forest that and no one heard it, uh, would it be a post? Um, you know, so I, I think that. Uh, there's just nobody, there's almost no action in threads right now. So it's down, I think, 80% of the uh, usage. Uh, and I don't know who's running into limits. People talk about running into limits. I, I don't know how many disaster posts the, the Japanese prefixtures were, were posting. I have never seen this, this so-called limit to my tweets. Um, maybe I don't tweet enough or something, but, uh, you know, and, and I don't, you know, I tweet probably not that many times. I mean, I cheat maybe five or six times a day if I, at a really heavy day will be five or six times and usually two or three times a day. So maybe I'm just a very low volume tweeter, but I feel like, wow, if everyone's tweeting that much, I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily against the limits, you know, if, if they were actually making that many tweets, but I don't know what the limit is. Next question. Paul Wallace is next from Austin, Texas. Discuss 3DMD, dynamic 4D, 3DMD capture systems powered by 3DMD software. They're enabling computer vision, artificial intelligence, machine learning, XR, VR, AR. And he's got a link there. Yeah. So what they're doing is what, you know, there's been a lot of, sorry. That was my, my speaker is routed out. <laughs> so, so that's what you heard there. I, I usually have it routed to my ears. So usually if I accidentally plug something in, it goes into my ears and I hear it, but not now. That's what it sounds like when, I, when the whole thing turns on. Anyway, so the, um, I was looking at the video that, that was being referred to here. And um, uh, the, I guess what I would say is that what, they, what they're doing is capturing geometry as video. So basically if you're moving, it can capture a moving hand and then now you can look at it from a lot of different directions. And Microsoft has its own uh, R&D. It's got a lot of other things that it's working on there. And so uh, there's a lot of people thinking about this and, and it started when people started using Kinect. You know, the Kinect that came with the Xbox a long time ago wasn't very successful on its own, but people started playing with that idea of having, um, being able to gather that data and then be able to turn it into geometry. Um, generally, the problem right now is the geometry is not very clean. Um, so it's, you know, it's got occlusions become a hard, hard, you know, if you put your hand in front of the camera, then you can't see what's behind it. Now they'll use multiple cameras to try to get rid of that occlusion, but occlusion still becomes an issue. Um, uh, detail around the edges becomes an issue. So there's there's still a lot of stuff. I mean, it's it's early days. I'm not, you know, and I think that it will get better. Um, I actually think that what's going to be more interesting is how this technology um, let's see if I say this correctly, morphs into nerfs. So as we start to see this technology grab the data, that video data, and and reproduce it as nerfs, um, so these are neural radiance fields. The advantage of nerfs is that it takes a lot more, it, it, there's a lot more geometry that can be grabbed onto. And the problem with nerfs is that we can't really manipulate them at all. So we can't retexture them, can't do currently, can't do a lot of those things. But being able to grab that data in in uh, at high velocity and convert it to something that can you can move around is is an interesting um, 
potential. Next question. Eric Hurst in Hartford, Connecticut. While there are hundreds of thousands of Black Magic ATEMs sold, how often do these? Uh, how often are these used to produce quarterly CEO town hall events? Perhaps these larger events are mostly produced with uh, vMix, OBS, Wirecast, or AWS Link hardware. Go ahead, Courtney. I don't really have uh, finite information other than the fact that during the pandemic, uh, we still went out and I worked on as a teleprompter, uh, providing teleprompter services for a number of these live stream charitable events. And almost all of them that were live streaming were using ATIM minis or ATIM extremes because uh, that was new. So uh, in my experience in the field, I'm seeing a whole lot of ATEMs out there being used on pretty high profile, not super high profile, but pretty high profile charitable events, CEO, live streams, um, you know, corporate meetings, things like that, uh, Zoom meetings. Things. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Occasion- my answer would be occasionally depending on the of access to and availability of tech people in the corporation. And I say that because I used to run into this a lot. I used to do mostly corporate video and I never, I learned to never underestimate the lack of technical chops of the line workers. And this is not a, a, a slam at anybody. The, the kind of stuff that we do and we, we take for granted operating switchers and things like that. For most people, that is a black art and they just don't understand how it works. So it would often be the case that unless a professional was coming in to do a switched show for someone, Occasionally, companies would have some young person generally in the the lower ranks who was technically interested and learned to do the switch for a CEO kind of broadcast. And they would kind of toss that to that young man or woman in in addition to their regular duties. And in almost all cases, I remember hearing, I talked to many of them through the course of my corporate career, and they would get, yeah, they're asking me to do this, and I'm learning it, I'm fascinated with it, but I'm not getting paid an extra penny to do it. So unfortunately, I think that's the the typical thing. It's seldom that a company takes somebody out and gives them the right training to become a specialist in something like the video arts. And it's just the way things, I used to go when I saw it. Uh, yeah, for when you're talking, it depends on how big of a company you're talking about. Um, so I will admit that most of my experiences, uh, Fortune 50 and really Fortune 10. So so I, um, but for the stuff we're doing, these are for town halls. Uh, these are big uh, fly kits or broadcast trucks. You know, so so these aren't these are not not little. We're not using OBS or or VMix or something you know like that. That you know these are. Um, much more involved um, pieces of hardware and think, but, but think like either a broadcast truck or, um, you know, or something in the similar fact, I'm trying to find you a photo here so I can kind of give you a sense of what these back ends look like, but, but it's not, yeah, it's not what, it's not like we're not making decisions about, um, like this is, here, just to give you a sense of it. This was our back end. I don't know, many years ago. Hold on, see, this was probably, this is, 10 years ago. Um, this is the back end for dream, our, our, just our section of Dreamforce and we're just doing the stream. <laughs> so, so we're just, we're just, you know, this is a, just doing the stream, but that's our section of Dreamforce 10 years ago. Um, and there were five or six sections in this one hall to manage that video. Um, you know, so, and then there was, 
you know, other halls. So, so, you know, these, these kinds of things are big hardware. There's hundreds of thousands of dollars of hardware. Usually it's rented. Usually it's an external team. Um, not always, but om- almost always. Cisco does their own stuff internally, but almost everybody else does it. They'll bring in truck, like Google IO is two or three, uh, full-on broadcast trucks that are that are going out on the outside, as, you know, as are a lot of the other ones. And so, so these are not, but they're not, so we're not really talking in, in that case about these. The ATEMs are really powerful for these smaller, you know, like if we're doing some a, a, a small meeting in a room, um, or a smaller company can put something together. Or what I use it for, I think that the the mo- the biggest the best use of these ATEM minis is really as a desktop unit. Um, you know, they they really sit on a desk and and cut between things like what we're doing, what you're seeing me do here. Um, they're very effective at that. But I wouldn't do major events with them. We do little events with them, but we don't do um, you know a lot of major major work with them. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. Gillette Stadium in Boston, Massachusetts recently installed a new 22,200 square foot curved LED video board. When producing content for a curved display, don't you have to map your content onto a curved shape? Uh, Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it it depends, Douglas. Um, If it's a projection, then you would definitely have to map it. Uh, If it's a direct view LED, uh, there's a server that's uh, driving those LEDs that can do a couple of things. One is it may uh, pre-distort the image that's going in if it's a standard 4K or 8K image. But generally, when I've gotten things like this, um, I have some friends up at the Lincoln Financial Field up in Philadelphia, is I'll just sort of pre-design around it. I don't necessarily have like one distortion uh, that does it because as you know, if you're moving uh, an image across a curved shape, it's gonna get different sizes depending on where it is on that uh, on that curve. So. Uh, the answer is kind of yes, most of the time if you're using LEDs and uh, if you're doing projection, you have to obviously pre-design the image to work with that object. Next question. Peter Buck in San Francisco comes in with Zoom walked back their AI data policy and will now seek consent before using their audio, video or chat for AI training. Any recommendations or just abide, dude? Go ahead, John. Just a idea. This is a bit of a PR curve. Is that our word? Kerfuffle? Yes, that's a word. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they had they had to walk this back. But but note that Google uh, has been training their their AIs on all your data for a long time. They're doing right now. They're they're currently doing YouTube. So all your videos that you do on YouTube, a little bit different for a paid service. Um, and so, so that's the, that's the, the, the wall that they ran into, uh, one close example would be GitHub. So Microsoft trained on all of the code on GitHub and that caused the kerfuffle as well. In fact, I think that's still a legal battle that's going on right now. It's a, it's a challenge. So. My understanding, and if you look at the look at the before and after very carefully, Zoom did not back did not back off anything. They didn't. They weren't doing it in the first place. <laughs> like all they had to do was clarify what they were saying. They were like, "Okay, so if you don't understand, this is what we're actually doing." And so the, they were not clear. All they did was clarify their document. They did not walk anything back because they weren't doing what people were claiming in the first place. This this article that started this whole mess 
um, was erroneous. It was, and I'm being nice because it was just flat out wrong, written by someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. It started off as a Reddit post by some Yahoo that was picked up by someone looking for a clickbait and and turned into a kerfuffle, you know, and Zoom had to basically um, apologize for not being more clear and then back off, you know, and, and then change or change this, but they didn't change anything. If you just, just look at, look at, go look at the contract before and after. It's not, it's not making any fundamental change uh, to what it's doing. They're just trying to make everyone stop talking about it. Um, next question. Rian Smith in Trinidad, West Indies, looking for a cheap, in quotes, HDMI wireless, wireless transmitter receiver with the lowest latency to be used dually for CAMS or iMag. Thoughts on this, and he's got a link there to a B&H Hollyland product. Uh, so thoughts on it? You know, the Hollyland's pretty good. There's a lot of delay in the Hollylands. So that's the big thing is that the delay in their, in their range tends to be a little bit um, truncated. So, so you'll see more breakup in a Hollyland. And again, what you'll also see is a much larger delay than Teradex and other solutions. So that's, that's the cost um, uh, for pretty short throws um, over and for that are cost effective. I think it works. Where you really will have trouble is where you mix and match a Hollyland with a um, wired connection. Um, it's going to be more problematic. Or if anything that has to go to an iMag, where you'd have to actually see it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you might look at the new DJI. They're not, of course, the most economical out there. They're, I think, a couple of grand for a transmit receiver pair. Uh, but they they're very low latency because you know the DJI. I got into the wireless links that they use are, are in the. Uh, uh, standard five gigahertz and 2.4 gigahertz uh, ranges, but uh, they're super low latencies because they're for flying first-person video drones. So you can't have a lot of latency there, otherwise you run into a tree or a wall. So uh, they have very low latency, and they just came out with this transmitter with multiple receivers uh, that you could use in a situation where you're doing iMag, uh, put a receiver behind your iMag screens, and uh, one transmitter uh, from your source that goes to them might might work for you but it is like i say a couple of grand and the receivers are about a thousand dollars a piece i think next question tommy chance in st paul minnesota says what ethernet switches do you folks use in your setups and what do you look for in specs for them good mitchell i i use the netgear and i know there'll be some groaning but um they're just readily available they work great um in my particular case i like the poe version where the poe plus so I can uh, power my uh, Dante network, and I don't necessarily need switched uh, Ethernet for that. So it's simple for a guy that doesn't know a lot about IT and IP. Um, it works well, and I have had no problems with them. They work reliably well. Yeah, I'm using the uh, the this is the Netgear ProSafe um, Plus switch with PoE. So PoE having PoE on most of them is, is important to me because I'm powering a bunch of things to them. So um, and that's worked pretty well. My router is a Meraki. My switch is this little Netgear. Um, this is my desktop switch. I mean, obviously we use other switches. We use Cisco switches at the office. So it just depends on how much you're putting into those things. But for my little desktop one, it's about and this is an eight. Eight in uh, or a very small, relatively inexpensive um, switch that seems to be working well on my desktop. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Worldwide market share of video conferencing. Zoom has 55%, Teams 21%, GoTo 13%, WebEx 9%, Ring Central 6%, Meet 5%, FaceTime 3%, Skype 3%, Messenger 
0.82%. Blue jeans, 0, 0. I think they're gone now. Any surprises on this list? And uh, Paul notes he was shocked about how Messenger is so low. Do, do people actually use Messenger for video? I, I guess it, I guess it, they can. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I didn't, is, mess, is he talking about Microsoft Messenger? No, I think he's he... talking about, um, you know, uh, there's, there is a video feature in, in Facebook's Facebook's Messenger. Messenger. Facebook well, it's yes. down at 0.82%, so less than 1%, significantly. So there may be some holdover. And I was, I was surprised that Teams, uh, in the corporate environment, Teams is probably pretty high. Zoom has taken a lot of their business. It used to be Skype, but then Skype's down to three because they pretty much, Microsoft, which owns both, Teams destroyed and it. Skype decide to destroy it and, I mean, it and sideline it and not really support it anymore in, a, in an effort to move everybody to Teams. Uh, so uh, that doesn't surprise me very much that it's down to three now, but uh, it does still work. It hasn't been completely eliminated yet. But like Alex says, yeah, they they added stuff onto it that made it pretty un- difficult to use, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, you know, I'm not surprised that you know Zoom has become kind of the thing that you just see the most often. Um, obviously, Blue Jeans was something that people were using for a little while, and now they've kind of that's kind of dropped off. Um, the uh, well, actually, there was a note they shut it down. No, they, they, I know. It, I'm saying they, they yeah, killed well, it because it was dropping off. I mean, it was just falling like a rock. Uh, I'm su- I'm a little surprised that WebEx is lower than GoToMeeting, just because both of them are like you know we uh, you know I don't see them very often. Either one very often. I see. I haven't seen GoToMeeting in a couple of years. Um, WebEx, I've, I've seen um, um, maybe once <laughs> you know, in a long time. So, uh... whoops, it looks like Alex has frozen. Is that, uh, am I confirmed there? Yeah, it looks like, looks like that. So, um, unfortunately, let's see, are there any more hands? Courtney, you had a comment on this. I already did comment. Oh, Alex is back. Alex is back. Alex, you froze there. Am I back? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah can you hear me okay? Um, yeah, so so I, I was a little surprised that WebEx was as low as it is. I mean, there's a couple companies that still use it because once it's installed and it's part of their security profile, it's hard to change. Um, you know, I, I do feel like Zoom would do better if they paid less attention to teams and more attention to making just a better video product. <laughs> like, I think that that's the danger. Zoom is way ahead. Zoom won't stay ahead. And we're back in. Yeah, Alex must be having connectivity problems. Let's see if we'll give him a. I'll, I'll tap dance for ten seconds and see if they're, they're looking backwards at a company behind them. Alex, you're very intermittent. I'm not sure if it's Wi-Fi or something going on, but you dropped out again for a significant Can you hear me period. Now? Yeah, you're back. Yeah, in I'm now. not. I'm not on Wi-Fi, so so it's it's just whatever whatever's yeah, going some, on in my something's network. going on um there you know the um all i was going to say is that i think that uh, and i don't know where i left off or where i fell off but you know i think that zoom's biggest uh, danger is is looking backwards at teams teams is behind them and they're trying i feel like they're trying to match features outside of video um, with teams this is a huge mistake this is what apple did in the 90s um and i think that zoom is is this has become distracted by you know, Windows. And I think that there's a, a pretty big danger for Zoom that they're going to get themselves um, lost instead of, uh, um, you know, I think that's the, that's the biggest danger is they're going to get lost and not take advantage of the fact that they're just the best video platform and continue to make that better. So hopefully they'll be able to do both at the same time. Next question. 
Alex Legnowitz of Toronto, Canada. What is the current suggestion for lower budget cameras such as the Brio 4K Insta360 Link or OBSBOT? Uh, I would definitely pick the Insta360 or the OBSBOT. Um, I have both of them now. Uh, the OBSBOT Tiny 2 is the one that I'm using that I'm testing at the moment. Um, I, I will say that the I like the OBSBOT camera itself, I think maybe even better than the Insta360. The software is not stable and not nearly as good as the Insta360. So the OBSBOT is, you know, their software development is there um, than the Insta360, but the camera itself is also, we think, controllable by OBS, but we haven't been able to get it to actually work yet. So, so you know, it's between the Insta360. I, if I was going to pull something out of the, if I was going to say buy something right now, I'd probably say the, still say the Insta360 link, but we are testing the OBSBOT Tiny 2. And the reason that we're looking at the OBSBOT is because the Insta360 has not published an API. Next question. Michael Vosbeen in Woodstock, Georgia. Is there any such thing as a USB switcher? I have several USB cams that I use with Zoom and would like to select one camera or another without scrolling through them. Well, I guess the question is, is that if you're trying to do it with a piece of hardware, um, then that'll be hard. You can use something like OBS, Memo Live, uh, vMix, um, you know, lots of other things can be used at that will then output a video that you can use, um, that you can set up as a virtual camera into it. So, um, so um, there's also um, eCam is another one that you can use for that. So these are all USB sources to your computer that then can be switched. So software switchers for that, you have to watch sync and lots of other things because they tend to get behind and they're not as stable as a piece of hardware, but I think that's as close as you're going to get. Um, next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, MacBook Pro M1 on Monterey has its settings for require password to wake computer unchecked, but it doesn't seem to care. I've toggled this setting on and off, and regardless, it asks for a password after every sleep. Reboot no longer solves this. Any suggestions? You know, I don't, it's so rare for me to not just type in my password, um, that I, you know, I, you know, a lot of us have it tied into our watch or our phone or other things like that. Like if my watch is near my computer, it just opens. But, but the, um, but I'm just used to, in fact, I keep different passwords for all my computers. And I just type it in as I go, as I go. The best way to handle this is to not have it go to sleep so fast <laughs> or, or put it to sleep manually if you really want to. Um, but if you're having it close all the time, you'd have to type it in all the time. But I, I guess I don't, it may be that they're not getting enough feedback because people, Um, yeah. Next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's the perfect roll around standing desk? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. You know, I don't know about, uh, uh, roll around standing desk. I was looking at these on Monoprice the other day and I was surprised at how cheap these adjustable electric adjustable height desks are. So you can use them as standing desk and you can buy just the hardware and put your own desktop on there. Uh, for you know about a hundred bucks uh, from Monoprice, you can get an electrically adjustable height uh, stand and just put some casters on the bottom of it, and uh, there you go. You can use it as a sitting desk or a standing desk, uh, and adjust the height uh, as you go. So that looks like a good solution for a hundred and nine bucks. And go, Bill. 
Yeah, for me, it depends on how much desk space you need. If you need a, like a regular 60-inch wide desk, then uh, those things are fabulous. I have found that for rolling rigs, and I learned this in my voiceover stuff, I built one that was narrower than that just to hold a computer and maybe a couple of little peripherals. And what I really discovered was the medical field has tons of that kind of really robust furniture because they have to roll test carts of things room to room. So they're really well built. They tend to be a bit expensive, but on the used market, they can be really inexpensive. And boy, they're stable. They're solid. They don't rattle around. So that's another possibility to look at if you need something smaller. Just a quick reminder that uh, tomorrow we're going to be talking about mixing maxims. Uh, this is um, the universal truths of preparing to mix any kind of live event for PA, recording, broadcasting, and streaming. So we're going to be talking about that tomorrow. Um, Thursday, my brother's going to be talking about Steadicam. So my brother's going to be in here, and we're going to be talking about the Trinity Rig and Steadicams and answering your questions about those. So that should be a, a lot of fun on Thursday. Um, the Zoom team, Andy and Jonathan and Sam, will be here on Friday to um, answer your questions about a lot of the of the new features that, that Zoom is coming out with. So stay tuned for that. Of course, we have a general Q&A on Saturday. And um, and then on Sunday, of course, is introspection. It's usually a good time to ask philosophical questions and and, and office hours inside baseball questions. Um, so stay tuned for all of those uh, in the upcoming week. And now we're going to go ahead and jump into the second hour to discuss uh, what we saw at Seagraph. And now we're uh, jumping into the second hour and we're going to talk a little bit about Seagraph. Some of us actually were there. We, we, we broadcasted from uh, Seagraph and we, uh, I think we had a pretty good time. I think that I would definitely go back and look at the coverage. I think we did a, um, we did a pretty, uh, um, I think the coverage is, you know, was, was pretty good. You got to see a lot of different things um, and a lot of things that, that we thought we found interesting. And, and I think we had a pretty good interaction uh, with everybody asking questions. The one thing I would recommend is when you see us doing those lives is to um, is definitely jump onto those and, and, and uh, ask the questions and, and, and really keep the conversation moving forward. Uh, we did have a lot of good interaction with everybody here. And um, when I did that announcement, I, uh, I lost my panel. So just give me one second. I can't see anything. <laughs> so there we go. All right. Anyway, so, um, so we're going to, you know, we'll talk a little bit about it. I don't know if the other panelists had things that they saw that were particularly uh, interesting. McKay, uh, Alan, were you, were you, uh, um, did you, were you following Seagraph much from, from your vantage point? I was heads down and knee deep in production, uh, through the entire week. So I, I wasn't able to follow it too much. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all good. I mean, I think some of the things, the, some of the trends that we saw, there was a production summit that happened the, the, the weekend, the week before on Thursday and Friday, and then there was Seagraph. And I think that the things that we saw a lot of movement on are nerfs. So, um, you know, we've been seeing nerfs building up over the last couple of years. These are the neural radiance fields and, uh, the ability to use them and how people want to use them. They're not ready for production yet, but they are, you know, but we we see a lot of things that aren't ready for production for a little while. And then they slowly find their way into production as people figure out what to do with them. So, so we saw the, um, you know, nerfs started to pick up speed uh, in that, you know, in that process. And a lot of people are talking about them. Of course, there's more motion capture. Motion capture has gotten to be much less expensive than it used to be, along with a, a lot of pretty interesting uh, tracking tools. We're going to bring some of these folks on for second hours um, for these Tuesdays. Because a lot of the match moving stuff has gotten to be, I mean, when I started doing this, I know I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm always like, you, I, I can't believe, you know, we used to have to track that backwards in the snow. Um, and uh, it's it's a lot, uh, it's gotten a lot easier. Um, and uh, there's some new tools out there. I think that we talked a little bit, well, I think there's some questions about this, but there was some, 
um, comments and questions about Feather. Feather is a free app, which I have downloaded now. I'm still learning how to use it where you can sketch in 3D. So um, Feather is on the iPad, it's free, and um, you can. And the demo was just unbelievable. Like being able to basically establish planes, I mean, organic planes, and then be able to sketch across those planes um, is, is a pretty amazing uh, tool to, to look at. So I think a lot of, it caught a lot of people um, and, and got them pretty interested in it. There's a couple new 3D apps that are coming out that, that we covered during the event, um, as well as, you know, seeing, I think the thing that was pretty impressive also for me was seeing the, uh, the new USDZ imports into Resolve. So now you can bring in uh, USDZ files into Fusion and be able to build composites and do all that stuff all within, within Resolve, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting. Go ahead, Courtney. You know, Wacom hinted that they were going to show something new the second day, and we never found out what it was. Did you ever find out? Wacom, excuse me. Wacom. Wacom. Yeah. Wacom. We did learn Wacom. the one thing Think that was very important is that we, yeah. we would like to spread the word. It's Wacom. It's Wacom. We've, we've asked, we, we asked someone at the company, how do you say this? Is it Wacom, Wacom? It's Wacom. Wacom is the right way to say the, the you word. You Wacom, you Wacom, and then you Wacom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, yeah. So Wacom is the uh, the right way to do it. They did say they were going to do something new, but I, I don't. Did, did you see anything new on their site? We didn't. I think we just didn't come well, back. When you yeah, when you right before you left, you said, "Are you, are you announcing anything new?" And they said, "Come back tomorrow because you know, we're going to announce something new." But we never. You never went back to the next no, day. That, we, we said, "Sure, sure, we'll sure. Back we'll tomorrow. be back. Yeah, we'll be back tomorrow." Uh, and um, I, I don't, I don't. I'm, I'm looking to see if there was an announcement there. Yeah, we we had a good. What, what we really, what was really cool um, with the uh, um, with they they had the the history of them. Oh, this is the new. Um, oh, this was released uh, 21, uh, 21 minutes ago. Oh, so it's just a new Wacom one. Um, so this is the, I think that that's what they were excited about, the Wacom one. Um, I don't know what they, they it's now. Um, Wacom one. Wacom. The Wacom, sorry, yeah, Wacom. I'm going to have to get used to it. Um, so the Wacom one, Wacom one uh, is, uh, this is what I'm using. So the Wacom is the, the what I what I use here to draw. So when you see this, you know, happening on my screen, that's using a Wacom, a Wacom one. Um, so it's, this is a new version of it. It looks very similar to the old version of it. Uh, I'm not sure what is uh, new and different. It looks like they have one that's a little bit smaller and one that's a little larger. I have to admit that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I am somewhat interested in a smaller version of, of this. Uh, you know, you think that you want, um, you think that you want a larger version? You you want a larger version? We the first time we built this drawing app that I the first version of this drawing app was used on a twenty one inch. It's just giant, you know, giant uh, piece there, and it's just too hard. It, it was actually too much movement. Your arm got tired if you were doing a lot of markup, and it just didn't matter. Like the resolution didn't matter at that point. So. Uh, so we, we really have gone to smaller ones with screens and we've tried some of the, some, there's some knockoffs from the Wacom that, that we've, that we've tried it and we haven't been that impressed with them. So we, we kind of backed off from that. The, again, the cool thing about the Wacom booth was all of the, they had the very early versions as well as all of the, all the way up. So from, you got to see what it looked like in, I think, 1984, which is when the first one came out. So um, it, it was, it's, it's an interesting thing to see the iteration. So yeah, 
Yeah, it was good. Um, you could you could tell from the size of the bezel how old they were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I feel like there's some point where we're going to get to a bezel-less, uh, you know, uh, Wacom. <laughs> so it's, it'll be interesting, just a piece of glass that you're just tightening. Maybe it might be transparent, you know, I don't know, transparent circuitry somehow. I don't know. We'll see. So um, anyway, yeah, that was cool. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously NVIDIA and AMD had a lot of, um, there, another thing that I thought was really interesting was the clothing. So a lot of the, you know, digital clothing was really interesting that they have, you just put, you can run an unreal, uh, run a character into a clothing simulator. A, a, a clothing designer can design it the way they normally would with all the stitches and everything else. And then the simulator will put it, wrap it onto the body and then simulate all the motion and then be able to export that back out to the 3D application, which I thought was pretty interesting. We showed some of that on the on the live stream as well. So, um, but I think that as far as trends go, you know, I think capturing people's movement and moving them in, um, being able to, you know, the simulation and nerfs are, I think, some of the big things that we saw a lot of. Um, and of course, AI was everywhere. You know, like people talking about the impact of AI, being able to, you know, open up a 3D application and just say, I want 300 spheres, you know, that are spread out evenly and boom, now spread them out randomly, boom, now do, you know, and, and Alan and I can attest to the amount of time it takes to do that normally, you know, like you can build a replicator or you can build something else, but being able to just say what you want and talk about it. And I think that we're going to see a lot of, I think we're going to end up seeing a lot of 3D apps taking on all kinds of um, uh, AI tools where a lot of your generation, I think that you may still break down and do a lot of the stuff manually, but a lot of the general generation of stuff that we tried to do before is going to be stuff that we're just talking to the 3D app. You know, give me a mountain, give me this, give me this, push this down, move this around. And I think that we've all dreamt of a day when that would happen. Um, but uh, we're, we're, we're getting pretty close. Go ahead, Bill. Well, going back a moment to you mentioning the costume design kind of thing, that really... That was a wow moment for me because I thought about the fact, uh, like my Comic-Con folks that I love who spend all their time designing characters and things like that, to be able to work virtually out of, you know, wherever you are and build your brand and your uh your skill set as a costume designer for the virtual world, you can just see that clearly through line as something that young people will be interested in doing. And, you know, wherever you are in the world, you now have access to being able to apply those skills that you used to need a brick and mortar plant and scissors and fabric and things like that. And you can now do that 100% virtually. And it's the bare bones beginning of that whole industry. I just found that fascinating. And it's clearly something with all the character animation, with all the gaming, that's clearly going to be an explosively growing area. A, a virtual digital designer for character apparel, weapons, who knows, whatever the game needs well, is going to be a diffuse and gigantic industry. You can see a lot of people focused on how do you build assets for people. Like, so there's yeah. uh, Global Objects was one of the companies that, that managed the, uh, that helped um, push forward um, uh, the production summit the week before. And of course, that's what a lot of what they're looking at is how do you capture a lot of things people want to use. This is also why the original Epic suit happened with Apple was basically Epic's trying to open this up so that they're not, that if you're buying and selling digital goods like swords or or houses or chairs or other things to build your virtual experience, um, that you're not paying Apple 30% for every transaction. That's what they're trying to, that's what Epic's trying to carve out 
is that because they see a huge opportunity for people to be buying and selling virtual goods, but it won't work if they lose 30% every time they make a transaction. So that's the, um, that's, that's why you're seeing that battle. And you can see us getting closer to that surface um, right now. Next question. Joe Kidd in the Bay Area in California says, during live coverage, was Alex using a watch app? How was the app persistence managed? Thanks. I was not uh, using a watch app. <laughs> I had a watch. Uh, I do have the watch there. I think if you saw me looking down, I was reading from my phone. So there is a, a different view of of, of Makana that, that allows you to look at a, you know, that that shows up on a phone. So when I was looking down at something, most likely I was, what you, what you saw me there, it might've looked like I was looking at a watch, but I was actually looking at my phone and I was seeing all the questions coming and being sent in. So if they were sent to the host, uh, I was able to see them on my phone and that's what I was reading. Go ahead, Bill. Well, persistence isn't that big a problem. And I say that because uh, on, during my Comic-Con stint this year, I had uh, my phone on the end of a monopod and I would often look for overhead angles and things like that. And whenever I did that, I used my watch as a remote viewfinder for it. And I found that the persistence was decent. I mean, it would go dark, but I could just tap it quickly and it would Im- immediately connect to the camera up there via Bluetooth. And I could frame shots based on my watch. So I am using Using my watch more and more in shooting as an agent, uh, as an adjacent either viewfinder or control for something. And in that case, you can not only see the shot, but you can tap the take a picture button there or start going to record mode. So I'm just seeing more and more of that stuff. And I use it every day on my walks uh, for tracking and and. Uh, letting me know where I am in my route and things like that. And so I'm just seeing more and more fast-moving watch to phone to or watch without phone if you are uh, if you have a cellular watch. Um, I just think it's a coming thing. It's becoming more and more integrated in my life, and it's really being useful. And I think that's going to continue yeah. in the production space as well. Yeah, no, I think that um, the reason, the main reason I don't use my watch for anything in production is that persistence problem, which is, I think Apple needs to give you a warning and then just keep it up. Like if I if I if I want an app up, I should have the ability to do that. So yeah, so that's why I don't use it for that. Next question. Uh, uh, Raj Shandil, Pixar's Open USD was being discussed a lot at SIGGRAPH. Why is it so important? So. One of the big problems that you have is getting data between different applications. So this may be web data. This could be Unreal. This could be um, uh, Unity, Cinema 40, Maya, you know, Autodesk, you know, a variety of Autodesk tools, all of these things. And the issue that we get ourselves into is the is how do we get all the data, when I say the data, the geometry, the textures, the lighting, the animation, the, you know, um, you know, a lot of those, all those features, how do we get all of that from one place to another? And right now, it's been ugly. <laughs> it's been, you know, we're using FBX, OBJs, um, a variety of other file formats. And there's always been this talk of let's get everything into one place and so we can just safely move all this data from one place to another. Because a lot of times the data is the same. It's just in a different format. What's happened now with Pixar? Pixar had this problem because they're moving things a lot between a lot of different applications. And so they built this universal scene description. So this is called USD. And Pixar used it internally. Apple saw what Pixar was doing and said, why don't we zip this? So it's all a continuous file. It's not considered like a package. Um, and uh, we'll make it a, a, its own file so that you can move it around. And so that became USDZ. Um, but a lot of the industry is not necessarily interested in zipping it up because it slows things down a little bit on the packaging. Um, so they really wanted USD. So 
everyone got together and like, let's stop trying to figure this out individually. Let's all work together. So Apple, NVIDIA, you know, all the big players have now gone into open USD. By saying it's open USD, it means that we're not going to, they're not going to, um, it's not going to be licensed at some point in the future like MPEG does. It's going to be something that we can all use. And it's going to uh, allow everyone to find a way to move all that data. Probably the closest thing to this was probably um, FBX or emblemic, uh, emblemic, emblemic. I, I don't have to say that word very often. Um, but the um, uh, but those are probably the ones that were the closest to what we're talking about here. Uh, but USDZ is by far the best, in my opinion. And so I think that that we're going to it's going to make a lot easier for us to create quote unquote an omniverse that NVIDIA talks about, which is that we can move all of our objects back and forth between lots and lots of different pieces of software. Still have it. I'm sure it'll still have its sharp edges, but, but it's a, it's a pretty exciting because once all those big players say, this is what we're going to use, it becomes very hard for anyone else to, to peel out from there <laughs> because, you know, now all the, all the big players, it's like AV1. Once everybody got into AV1, we all knew it was the future. Of, of what we're doing with video, even if we're not there yet. Uh, next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. What is the file output from Feather? Will it be compatible or transferable to other modeling tools? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, it does say you can export the files to OBJ files or GLTF files uh, as well. Those two file formats it will export to. So OBJ, of course, is a very common file format. You can load those into any 3D modeling software that's used for 3D printing. Uh, so it would become handy for that. The Feather software only works on a tablet, and it has to be with touch uh, tablet or something that has touch interface or a pin interface for it, because that's how it's designed to work. It looked very cool. Uh, the The question is how well the snap works. Where you know when you're trying to spin something around and then draw a line between this point and some point in 3D space, you know, where it snaps to on those endpoints is important. And uh, that remains to be seen how how easy that is to use. The, the demonstrations, they were very skilled in demonstrating it. I don't know if it's as easy to use as, as the skilled demonstrators were indicating. It definitely takes practice. You know, so so I, I downloaded it and I was like, oh, this is this is heavy, you know, but but basically the first stroke that you make, um, the first stroke that you make will define the surface that you're drawing on. So you can look at it in a certain from any angle, you can look at it and just draw a squiggly line or a curve or whatever you want. And then when you turn it, you're ray tracing from where from your 2D plane. So, you know, if you have this kind of a surface that you've drawn from whatever your viewer is. It's casting basically a ray to this, and so you know, and 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 so it's just moving. So you're basically then drawing something on that surface, and it's just following that surface along as you go. Um, I had a little bit of a discussion with the with the designer of it. We're going to bring bring them on to talk about it because uh, it was definitely the 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 showstopper there. I mean, I think everybody was trying to, and it was amazing. They came out of nowhere. No one had ever heard of them before, and suddenly they had like a forty by forty booth that was gorgeous. That was just mostly them showing how it worked, and it's just really impressive. They've they've had you know four or five years of development that they've been working on there, and it's um I, I don't know what I would use it for other than I think that um I I did send it to a couple of my friends that are uh, pr that are designers um that you know work in movies and that design stuff that I used to work with it at um at uh, Lucasfilm, and so we'll, we'll see. They haven't given me they haven't told me if they like it yet or not, but. 
but uh, we'll we'll get feedback from them and see if they if it if it lands. But it's pretty impressive, um, and I'm really curious about these little wireframes that you could build and theoretically send USDZ to other people so they could open them. Um, once I figure out how to use it, I could theoretically send you know draw something, send it out as these other file form OBJ or whatever, run it through um, Reality Converter into a USDZ file. And then send it to somebody. You just text them the file, and they have this weird little wireframe that they could they could look at, which I think would be kind of fun. So we'll see. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What screen resolution were most of the demo artist workstations? Was there any new display technology being demoed? I didn't see a lot of. I mean, I didn't notice any, but it might also be that I wasn't really paying attention to screen technology. But it all looked like they were all 4K monitors. I mean, most of the time when I saw most things, when I looked at it, I would have I would have assumed that they would be 4K. Um, you know, so pretty high resolution. You most 3D artists work in a in a 4K or they split screens like I do. So, but I think there you you're not splitting a lot of screens, and so typically they had a 4K monitor. Next question, Douglas Carmichael. What was the most compelling technology you've seen at SIGGRAPH? Uh, you know, I think that the, the Feather was a pretty interesting one. I don't know if it's the most com- the most groundbreaking technology that we saw there. Uh, uh, Leah was was also really impressive. So um, we will bring them on as well. I don't know how we're going to be able to represent what they do. So Leah is a tablet. It's about a thousand bucks. And it tracks your eyes and then hands you a 3D image. And it's amazing. Like what happens is when you pick it up, it's 2D and then suddenly snaps to 3D. And it and and it, it's, I mean, you, they had a sample of Avatar that just sticks sticks right out. Now they have their own software that can convert that as well. Um, but it was super impressive. Like I, I was kind of, I was very blown away um, by uh, by the look. I mean, it's really felt real. It's not, it's not like the, the little screens that kind of are 3D. This is really a 3D image. It was, it was amazing. Go ahead, Courtney. Did you ever make it over to the experience hall to see what was in there? Because that's, I guess, where they would show new display technology or, or any kind of uh, we, uh, new viewing technology, 3D. I, viewing. I will admit, we were looking at it through the lens of showing things rather than us wandering around and um, it was opened when we went over there and it was so crowded and so chaotic that we just made the decision we can't film in here. And I didn't have time to do anything other than film. <laughs> so, so we were either prepping for film or doing filming or, or getting ready for it or whatever. And so because we made the decision that it wasn't a shootable location, I didn't see, I mean, I definitely, there was definitely a lot of people in there, um, but we kind of skipped over it just because it was, it was not laid out very well. Like it, the, the, it used to be, that experience used to be, there used to be a lot of space um, between, I, I, as I remember it, it was a huge cavernous area and there was tons of space between booths and there was tons of room to kind of work in. And they had packed that thing in so tight that it was just like, it was, it was, it was, you know, not a great experience in my opinion. I, I think that that was the, I think one of the challenges that Seagraph had in general was the, you know, I think that parts of it, of it condensing down, kind of pulled everybody together. So there was some energy that was created by pulling people together. But the uh, the rooms generally, I think the 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 session rooms where they were doing talks ended up being sold out all the time. Like lots of them were just, there were way more people than they had seats. 
and that you know doing that over and over again makes it really hard for people to get people to pay for it later you know the next time you know and i i know that i had a lot of friends i'm, I'm on a list with a lot of people that were all at seagraph and they were like well i'm now just looking at whether they're being recorded or not um and then i'm not going to the ones that are recorded because they can't i can't i don't want to try to get in and then the people who are watching online there were streams but they didn't have a lot of bandwidth people online were like you know i, I can't ask questions which we, which we could have fixed for them. But anyway, but, but the, um, uh, you know, I think that there was a lot of, I, there was some energy created. There was a fair bit of frustration that was created as well around some of the, you know, compactness of it because it, it, it made it harder. So it'll be interesting to see what they do, what they do next year. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What booths and or vendors do you wish you had covered but didn't have the time to get to them? You know, I, it would have been nice to jump into the Adobe booth and really talk to someone about substance. Admittedly, Adobe was very popular there. Their generative AI, uh, new, the tools that they were showing off there were, were very impressive. I think that Adobe is now just starting to go into the 3D asset world where you're generatively being able to add things and build them out. And so I think that there was some, but it was just hard to find, figure out exactly where to shoot that. There was one on GPU powered text that we kept on talking about going to. And it wasn't that it was that busy, but the, it was a single developer and he was always talking to somebody. And so at some point we were like, well, we, you know, we'll, we'll come back, we'll come back, we'll come back. And we never, because I was trying to figure out like, why, why is it GPU powered text? And, and so I was, I think I was just mostly curious about it. Uh, next question. Roscoe was back from Madison with, is a trade show still the best place to announce new technologies? What has been the biggest announcement you have seen recently at a trade show? Go ahead, Courtney. I think uh, we've moved on from trade shows. Uh, I think the biggest audience now is through influencers. And a lot of the companies have realized that. And that's why all these influencers that have millions of followers on YouTube uh, get all of the new products before they're released to the public or announced to the public uh, so that their followers can, uh, you know, follow along. If they just do a press release, you know, who's going to walk find that press release? But if they send a new product out to four or five of the top influencers and they feature it on their shows, uh, that's far better than doing any trade show and a heck of a lot cheaper, you know, it just costs you the price of that product. Of course, they may give it a bad review, so you have to manage that problem. But uh, I think you reach a much wider audience these days by just going through YouTube influencers. Good, Bill. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, when the guy said, you know, can you come back tomorrow? I have an announcement. I, just, I remember thinking, oh, that's odd. You've just missed an opportunity to reach hundreds of people, potentially thousands over the course of this year by not being there at the right time in the right place and pushing it off when we weren't able to get back to him. I do think that, you know, NAB used to be that first day when Black Magic eventually took over that kind of initial press conference before the show opened. That drove a lot of coverage because everybody was there and that kind of became the traditional start of the product release things. We'll get, we get products before that. People are thinking, you know, I don't want to get lost in the mess of all the new products coming out, but people still haven't quite figured out how to take advantage of shows like ours. If someone's coming live and they have an established audience, not taking advantage of that seems kind of like malpractice to me in the PR firm. I, I couldn't understand why you would do a press release or do any kind of product release on the second day of a of an expo. Yeah. It seems like it was a it was a very odd thought process there um, for for that. So I think they were probably trying to time something. I, I don't quite understand. Maybe it was 
again, sometimes this comes down to there's a there are PR rooms where they work with the press and they may have been trying to time that or get access to it or something. But I don't know if it was I don't know if it was worth it to, the same way that Courtney was talking about it. I think that there's a there is a value to releasing a video that tells your your story as a as a vendor about why you think something's important. But then I think you need to move to influencers and, and other things to, to to do those things. And so, you know, I think NVIDIA's presentation is up online. It still has all the issues that you have with live performance. I mean, one of the problems that, you know, we're, I, we're not really talking about graphics, but when we talk about conferences in general, is the live keynote is just really hard to watch, like at, at, at regular speed. Um, now that we're used to Apple's keynotes um, coming out and being edited much tighter than a human can do, um, being able to jump um, and move around and be a lot more interesting and get in, in, into it, I just don't see how uh, it continues to make sense to do a live performance of, of those keynotes. Um, I just don't know why why you would do that anymore. I mean, you know, so, so I think that that's the, I think that's the, you know, and I, I think that putting out your message is important, streaming it even so that people can ask questions in real time and you get everybody watching it. And that's what Apple does. Apple has millions of people watching it all at the same time, you know? And so I think that that is, uh, I think there's a power to having everybody have that as a unified experience. So I don't think that it's not a matter of streaming, but I just don't think putting people on stages and having them wander around. Uh, the hardest part is that, you know, generally, uh, as I said before, as I've said a couple times now, that watching executives present is kind of like watching a fourth grade piano recital. You know, like it's just, you know, you're there, this isn't what they do. Like they're not good at it. <laughs> like, you know, and they think that they are and they think that it's important, especially if English is their second language. I just wouldn't put them up in front of a lot of people uh, live. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Did you ever find out what the new chip NVIDIA rolled out at SIGGRAPH? Uh, was this the big news at the show or was there more buzz about something else? Definitely a lot of people talking about it. That was one of the big keynotes that, that did come out. We talked about this chip a little bit earlier. It's, it's expensive, <laughs> like, you know, and specialized. Uh, I don't, you know, it was very little talk about it. I mean, there were people who talked about it right after the conference, right after it, and everyone was like, okay, well, and they, and there's a lot of excitement around AI and generative AI and so on and so forth that's there, but we didn't hear a lot of it. The thing that you heard the most about there probably was nerfs. You know, it, it seemed like it became this thing that everyone was talking about because it's, it's basically a lot of the power of 3D, but without, with, you know, one-tenth the work. <laughs> so uh, being able to grab a bunch of images and be able to turn them into something that you can manipulate. The problem is it's very limited in what the manipulation is. So that, I think that was the thing that we saw. But a lot of people were talking about nerfs there um, and, and how to create them and, and how to, what, where they were going. Next question. Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. Nick mentioned that he was the most excited about USDZ. Was there a specific development around USDZ that we in office hours should be keeping an eye on? I think just the open USD is the thing that we want to pay the most attention to is the fact that now we can be pretty assured that this is going to be the standard um, of how things kind of move forward. And so I think that that is going to be, uh, I think we'll keep on um, looking at what those, you know, what that, what that looks like. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Mocap hands were something you covered. Thoughts on mocap hands? There's a couple. There's a couple different companies, and I don't have them off the top of my head. That that were basically there's a bunch of different ways of managing how how do you get fingers? Fingers turn out to be really hard. So when we do motion capture, you know, basically a lot of it starts with the hips in a lot of ways. Someone's got an open typewriter. Um, so um, uh, the 
you start with the hips and you figure out where they are. And then you have essentially what we call, um, uh, you know, rigid bodies. And so these rigid bodies are, uh, you know, we decide that, that if you, you know, if we put a couple points on my forearm and they should stay in the relationship to each other, if the relationship of those points on my forearm change, it means my forearm is no longer in the structure that it should be in. So something bad happened. So, so the rigid bodies allow us to kind of define those things and, and it allows us to correct for occlusions, but we can put anywhere from a handful of points to a lot of points onto that, onto someone's body. The hard part is, is that the resolution, you're trying to get big motions, you're trying to have 30 by 30 foot space, trying to get the little details that are in our fingers and the big motions from the body are really hard to do both at the same time. And the face is the same way. How do you get all that big area and then still capture the face? So we have individual facial capture um, that, that we put on. And these are head rigs usually that have a small camera that are grabbing onto that facial capture. And oftentimes you wanna do that facial capture with the body, so the body and the face are working together as you're, as someone's emoting. But the other thing that we that we were showing is finger capture. Now, there's a couple different ways to do it. Um, one way to do it is to really explicitly grab all of the movement of the fingers, which is what uh, one of the companies did. Another company um, only tracks the ends of the fingers as they relate to the center of the hand, and the idea is that there's not you know your fingers can only do a couple things and so because they're just hinges and so you can use inverse kinematics to basically if i move this finger in and out i can i all i need is ik to be able to tell you know inverse kinematics basically takes the end point and moves the joints to where they have to be to be to be there and so um so that can be done you know with because the fingers are relatively simple so there was a lot of it, the, the, you know, it can be done in real time. The resolution or the fidelity is very high now. Um, so it's a pretty interesting, pretty interesting puzzle there. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. You know, what I don't understand is, I guess this, this application for the mocap hands was for adding the detail of the fingers to a full body mocap where people are moving around in 3D space. Um, but, you know, I did a, uh, some video stuff for Magic Leap. 15 to 20 years ago and they had a device and I know because we, I set it up and used it and we photographed it. It's about this size. It sat underneath the screen and uh, looked at your hands and you could put your hands up in front of your face and on the screen, you would see skeletal hands moving in perfect synchronization, every finger movement, exactly the same, every position in 3d space, exactly the same. And I don't know what happened to it. I guess they incorporated it into their AR stuff or their AR glasses for hand gesture capture. But it was so real and so uh, so immediate, uh, low latency, that I wonder whatever happened to it. And that was 10 or 15 years ago. So they had the ability to do it back then. You know, why now is it so hard? I don't know. Well, I mean, it, what's hard is doing it in a large volume. So it can do it right under your screen, but can you do, can, could it do it when you're walking yeah. around in a space? And you're not and moving around. That's why I say the right. gloves are for full body capture to add the detail of the hands. Right. Where where you're moving around and you're not necessarily, because Magic Leap used, to, used two cameras in it and, uh, you know, yeah, positioned and, and, itself, calculated you know, the, itself based on the stereo image. And the new Apple Vision will do that too. So you're, it, it has very high details and, and as will, I think the new Oculus, um, you know, Oculus tool. So th those are there. I, we had a 25 years ago, I think I was in a, I was at a, at a facility in, in San Jose that you could just go, I want, you put gloves on. So there wasn't, it wasn't just 
visual, but I, we put gloves on. We had this huge umbilical cord that came down from the ceiling and hook into your, into this, almost a helmet that you put onto it. And you were in a 3D space and you said, I want a sphere this big. And it just appeared between them. And the interesting thing about the gloves is when you grabbed onto it, you could feel it. It, it had this little thing that it would, it was, it was push, it was an electrical impulse, but it gave you the sensation that you're grabbing onto it. And then you, and you'd be able to pull it like this and stretch it out and you're grabbing onto the isoprams and just kind of pulling it open and moving it over. And I thought in five years, we're all going to be modeling like that. And we're still waiting. <laughs> so, so anyway, so it's, it's, uh, you know, some of this technology takes a little while to make it a product. Uh, next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles up next. Is there anything you'd recommend to companies to make their booths better? Go ahead, Mitchell. Chachikas, always chachikas. And I'm interested in hearing what uh, was given away that was really cool. You know, I, I, the worst part is, is that I go to so many of these conferences that I'm, I don't want any, any uh, swag. Like I don't want any swag because I'm like, what am I gonna do with it? I have a, I have a, I have a whole thing full of shirts with different logos on them. I don't wear shirts with logos except for my own, like if I'm doing something, but I, I don't wear logo shirts. And so I don't have, so I have this thing, like I don't know what to do with all of this stuff. And so, um, and so I, I don't really look for that kind of thing. The, the thing that's most valuable to me at a conference is mints. <laughs> like, you know, so I'm always looking for mints. I always go to a booth that has mint, not candy, but like if you have lifesavers that are individually wrapped or if you have, you know, something that's individually wrapped that I can just go grab one because um, I'm always self-conscious because a lot of times you haven't eaten very much. And so you you go into a, um, you, you start getting, developing uh, when did halitosis. When did Altoids become the uh, mint of choice for production people? Um, so when I was doing seminars, so this is physical seminars, not, um, not gen not what we, you know, not virtual seminars. Uh, we out, you could only buy Altoids at, you know, I remember when I was doing them. So I used to man, I was a, uh, what they call a course supervisor and, and a production supervisor. And, um, I, uh, I know that there was in Denver where I, where we were doing these seminars, um, you could only buy Altoids at an English shop that was, you know, kind of a little bit outside of town. So you always send someone over to get some, get a box of Altoids that the, the, they haven't changed. And uh, except they have all these, I, I still use the same ones, the the exact same peppermint or whatever it is that is the ones I don't, I've tried the other ones. They're not very good. Um, anyway, so, uh, but yeah, so it was Altoids and Ricola's you could only get at that store. Um, and now they're everywhere, but it was a distribution change there. They're very effective. <laughs> like I will say that they are curiously strong bins, as they say on the tin. Um, and so, uh, so I think that uh, uh, Altoids are, you know, they're, they don't, they're not overly sugary and they're not overly whatever, but they, they do feel, you at least feel like your breath is a lot better. So anyway, so mints, mints are really useful um, on those things. I think that the other thing is, you really want to figure out for booths how to manage flow. So, you know, you see a lot of booths that, you know, there's a, how do, how are people going to come by and a lot of people see what you're doing at one time? Um, and I think that sometimes is hard. A lot of people make the mistake of not having monitors up high enough or having them large enough so that people can see them from three, you know, you have to think about how will people see what I'm doing three rows back? And if I'm doing something that's worthwhile, then... You know, that's the, you know, so we want to figure out how do we do that. And so monitors oftentimes aren't high enough yet, you know, high enough or the displays aren't high enough to really see what's going on. So um, I think that anything that does a live demo, if you have, if you've got something that's interesting, you got to be able to demo it live. Um, and so, and so I think a lot of people that did well are people that, that we could see from a distance and we could see what they were doing, like Feather 
Feather was, I don't, I don't know, I, I, I should have taken more photos. I realized doing this, the next time we do this for, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get the IBC team to do this, but for, I know for NAB, um, one of the things I want to do is, is uh, um, I want to take a lot more photos so that when we do this, we can break it down and go and show like a little photo gallery as we're talking, as opposed to us just talking about it. So, um, but I think that there's a lot, one of the things that really kills booths in, right now is the, onerous uh internet costs so the the internet costs are just insane i mean they are in some stratospheric level that no no booth can ever have any bandwidth and so that really is damaging i don't even know why you know like i would i think that there's a whole opportunity for venues to start making this making bandwidth a lot more cost effective and it would really change how these events go yeah go ahead bill I have a new proposal, and that is that we establish a new crew position that is called Swag Pirate. Their entire desire is to go around and find the best swag out of the entire show. And then somewhere in the last hour of the last day of the broadcast, we bring them on to explain and show us what was the best swag out of the show. I guarantee that will be the most watched hour of the entire coverage, especially if it's a three-day conference and people can go get that swag for themselves. It'll be huge. We'll have the swag Yes. The swag pirate. I'm telling you, it'll pirate. be huge. Does that mean they just walk over to booths and go, arg? <laughs> Can I have one of those, please? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Any thoughts on Nyriads, it looks like, uh, GPUs, GPUs combined with CPUs, data storage tech, and he's got a Nyriad IO thing there. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Go ahead, Courtney. I just briefly looked at it. It it looks like it's just uh, utilizing you know these higher end GPUs with uh, you know a hundred or two hundred execution units built into them to process uh, you know file I/O. So it's using it's taking over your file I/O bus and and parceling out uh, file transfer across multiple GPU cores uh, to speed up the transfer rate. And uh, they're saying something like twenty gigabytes per second with 95% sustained speed and 92% capacity efficiency, whatever that means. But those are the specs on it. Uh, so I guess it's it's a faster way of transferring files within your network or within your system uh, using the power of a GPU to, to handle the uh, bit blitting or the uh, data movement and encryption or decryption. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, has one here. Uh, Zeiss rep, rep, Jeff Dooley, was great. What did you think of Zeiss products offerings? It was good. It was good. This is a tracking uh, tracking system that that, that Zeiss has built um, around it. So match moving and and, and uh, tying that back in real time. And uh, I thought it was a great demo. Um, well, you know, we'd have to see it more in production to see how how well it actually works. Um, but it was really good. It was, you know, Zeiss does a lot. I think we think of them as a lens company, but they do an awful lot. They have an awful lot of different tools that they build in this kind of area. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I thought the fact that they and it was well demonstrated. That the uh, uh, the fact that it was an optical tracking system, but it needed a lot of information from the lenses. Well, Zeiss makes lenses, so they were uh, they were a great uh, great co- combination. There we go. 
So, uh, so we, that, that was our little coverage, uh, our breakdown of Seagraph. I know Seagraph, I think this is a new thing for most of our community. So I, I think that that'll be something that we, um, uh, that uh, we'll keep on covering. We'll keep on finding some of these um, outside of just the raw video that we've done in the past. Uh, our next one is going to be IBC. Uh, the team is putting that together. That's only a couple weeks away. So, um, so stay tuned for that. Um, I know that they're putting together a small team to make that actually happen. And then also um, New York will be in October. We do have a sign-up. I think IBC is already there, the team that they're going to use. Um, I know that for New York, uh, we are. We, there's a sign-up sheet. You would have seen it. Um, I, I think it went out on the email, but if it didn't, if you go to Discord, you can uh, see it. Go ahead and fill that out. We're, we're going to close that off pretty far in advance. So um, so the I'm not sure exactly when, but probably six to eight weeks out, we're going to probably close it off and decide that's our team. So if you're interested in being in the NAB um, New York team, uh, and and I right now I expect to be there uh, with everybody else. And so if um, uh, if you if you want to be part of that team, then then go ahead and fill that out. Uh, but we're going to keep on figuring this out, keep on covering stuff and and looking at what those things are, and and uh, and really trying to um, figure out a way that we can bring these conferences and make them more real for for everyone. You know, and and I think that you know the, our commitment to this coverage, both before, during, after is really the idea that, you know, there's a lot of people that can't go to these conferences. They can't get the visas. They can't get the money. They can't get the time. They can't get all of those other things. How do we make these available to them? Uh, how do we make them available to everyone um, and include them? So so, so we're going to keep working on it, keep figuring it out. Um, and I want to thank again the entire team that worked on this. There was 22 people uh, that, that that managed our coverage uh, for uh, for Seagraph. And, um, and so hopefully uh, we'll, you know, we'll have that or more uh, for the, the next shows coming up. But about every six to eight weeks, we're hoping to do some kind of coverage. So right now uh, we have, um, of course, Seagraph, we just finished. We have IBC coming up. Uh, we have NAB probably looking at um, going to uh, CES. So I think there's some fun stuff at CES that we'll do. And then NAM. Um, you know, and, and by the way, when we go to NAB, it looks like AES is right after it. So we may go ahead and stay and cover AES depending on uh, my schedule, but or we'll find somebody else as well. So anyway, so there's a couple things that we're covering there. Um, so, so those might be back to back and then we'll have CES, then NAM, then, then, uh, right now, uh, we'd be back to NAB and we just want to keep on, we're going to keep on working on getting better and better at it. Quick remi reminder that, um, that the show, we have a show workshop at 12 PM, uh, Pacific standard time, 3 PM Eastern standard time. And that is 1900 Zulu. Uh, so you can figure it out, figure out your own uh, timing. It's just a great opportunity if you're thinking about, Oh, I might want to try being a reader. I might want to try, what does it feel like to be a host or a panelist? Um, these are, a this is a great place for you to jump in and practice and, um, and figure out if that makes sense for you. Uh, we're always looking for new panelists. Um, so if you're interested in being a panelist, go ahead and reach out to one of us and uh, and let us know. And I think that there's a place where you can sign up that goes out in the email. So um, sign up for that. Um, and the, this is a good, safe place to start. Also, if you're interested in being a panelist, uh, Sundays are usually the best. Saturdays and Sundays are a great day to just jump on where it's, a, you know, the, the uh, water's moving a little slower. And uh, it's a great place for you to um, jump on and see how your, how your rig works. 
Um, you know, uh, thank you to the to the producers for all the great questions rolling rolling through here. Um, thanks to the uh, to the panelists. We can't uh, can't do this without you. So it's uh, it's always great to see everybody here. Um, you know, Alan is starting here. We didn't hear a lot from Alan today because because the producers. I'm just letting you know that Alan is here and he knows so much about 3D. So uh, when you see him here on the on on the on the session, uh, you want to know that this is a good day to ask about 3D questions. And so so um, so definitely um, Tuesdays we're really focused on graphics and. Again, each one of these days, we had such a great show yesterday about product project management. Um, and uh, so, you know, we have business building up on Monday and graphics. We're s- slowly building up on Tuesdays. Uh, Wednesdays, we've got, um, uh, you know, audio, which is, has been one of our stronger days. Uh, Thursday, of course, is video. Bill runs that one. Um, and then Fridays, we have, of course, logistics and just kind of all the other things, everything from IT to gaffer's tape. <laughs> so, so we have a lot of things there. Saturdays are going to be two hours of Q&A for a while or up to two hours, depending on how many questions you ask. And of course, Sunday is introspection. Um, and uh, thank, thank you to the incredible crew on the back end who, uh, who makes this all, all possible. I mean, this is not a Zoom. This is a, we use Zoom as a video transport device. Um, but uh, what you're really seeing here is an incredible amount of software that's developed by, by a great team and uh, a management of all, like figuring out what we're going to talk about on Tuesday and what are we going to talk about on Wednesday. And then finally, uh, a great team that's cutting the show and putting it together and managing the questions and doing all the other things all at the same time. So, so thank you to the incredible contribution that everyone makes. Uh, we traveled um, 59,000 miles today, 95,000 kilometers, and that is 468 million bananas for scale. This is actually the banana that we use. Um, anyway, it's, it's not really a banana. No. All right, let's go to the after hours. Not really a forehead either. It's a big forehead and a bear. Petrified banana. <laughs> Petrified banana. Oh, we found a banana from the Paleolithic. Paleolithic period. It's still yellow somehow. I don't know how that happened. It's Put that banana, banana down. You don't know where it's been. <laughs> All right. Nice show, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Mitch, I hope your sound field quiets down. Oh, it will. Thank you, Bill, for uh, covering the readership today. Uh, No problem. No problem.